good morning. My name is Stuart Roberts, and uh, I'll be your preacher this morning. Um, this is a fulfillment of a dream that I've had for about 40 years now. Uh, it's always good to be here at uh, Northern Life Church, but it's a very special uh, Sunday morning for me because I've been going to church my entire life, and I've always wanted to be a lay preacher. Uh, some of my earliest memories were as a, a young boy sitting in the congregation. In those days, they kept us in to listen to the adults speak. And uh, uh, the layman would get up in the pulpit and open the word of God confidently and speak from it. And I'd think to myself, how do they do that? I wish I could do that. I hope when I grow up, I can do that. Well, that was about 40 years ago, and here I am today. So thank you uh, for the privilege of, of uh, speaking to you this morning. Um, thank you to Pastor Jono for uh, Preaching Farm, where we, uh, we learned some of the tools of the trade. And uh, we'll see how I go this morning. Now, one thing they didn't teach us in Preaching Farm is what do you wear in the pulpit? Uh, uh, my fiance uh, Fifi, uh, had some uh, uh, ideas on that score. She said, um, I don't want you to wear your white shirts in the pulpit. She thinks I look like a, an IBM salesman or a Mormon or something. So, uh, so I've been very careful to wear my pink shirt. And while uh, we're on the subject of Fifi, you'd be aware that uh, uh, Fifi and I are getting married uh, Saturday of next week. Um, uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. Um, and you're all invited. Uh, we've, we've made sure we've tracked down most of you and, uh, and sent you an invitation, but if we overlooked you, then come and see myself or that's Fifi over there, uh, uh, second row from the, uh, the left. Uh, and we, we'd very much like you to have, have you coming. We're, we're assured that our event will not be shut down by Scott Morrison next Saturday. Now, the, um, the text we're looking at today is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, uh, and we'll go down to chapter 5, uh, verse 20. And uh, as uh, you would have heard from Margie, in the New International Version of the Bible, it's got that heading, Instructions for Christian Living. So we've got to the practical part of, uh, of Ephesians now. Uh, and so today we're going to look at what it means to be in a community, uh, in a holy community, in a community of, of holiness. Uh, as we were singing the hymns this morning, uh, I was struck by the uh, new hymn that, that, um, that we were introduced to. It opened with those words, when the lights went out. And it reminded me of uh, probably uh, a crisis that none of you will remember. 19th beginning of the world crisis, which became the First World War, the British Foreign Secretary was Sir Edward Grey. And Sir Edward looked out of the window of the Foreign Office just as the sun was going down in London. And uh, they were lighting the gas lamps in the streets just out the foreign office. And he turned to his colleague and he said these famous words, the lights are going out all over Europe. They will not be lit again in our lifetime. And that reminded me of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Well, let's, let's pick it up at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partners with them, talking about uh, the Gentiles in Ephesus. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, the lights never really went out, maybe politically, socially, economically, in the civilised parts of the world that, that we're used to, the lights went out, but the lights actually went on 2,000 years ago, when Christ came into the world and died uh, on the cross for our sins, and then rose again for our justification, and then into being miraculously came this holy community of believers. In Ephesus, the, the, the place we've been learning about, uh, Christians were not predominant. There were Jews, and then there were pagans. And as we've heard from Jono, it was the centre of the worship of, of Diana, or Artemis, as the, as the Greeks called her. How well did the lights go on? Well, I've never met a worshipper of Artemis or Diana, 
Hands up anyone who's heard, who's heard, who's ever met. Well, and yet 2,000 years later, there are still Christians. There's one pillar left of the church, of the, of the temple to Diana that caused all the trouble for Paul. And I read this week, they actually had to excavate that in the 1870s. They had to dig under the ground because the, the, the temple of Artemis had been buried so, so much underground. So the lights have come on and they've stayed on. The reason they've stayed on is because of the holy communities which God has created, of which we're given the, the archetype here in, in Ephesians. And the lights are on here in Sydney. And the lights are on here in Hornsby with all you people for whom the light of the Lord has come into your life. And what we're going to learn about today is what that means practically. Uh, we've spent the last few weeks looking at, at, the, at the theory, if, if you like. Important theory. Things that every Christian needs to know about their faith. So Paul's been teaching us about how and why God created his holy community of believers. He's reminded them and us, by extension, of all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. He's reminded us that we've been chosen by God. Isn't that wonderful? Through the work of Christ, we've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been brought near to the Father through faith. And we've been reminded, uh, through Paul's uh, message to the Holy Community of Ephesus, that all the people of this faith, Jews and Gentiles alike, and of course I'm pretty sure most of us are Gentiles here, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but we've been made alive in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what we've been covering the last uh, three chapters or so. And uh, last week when Rachel was sharing with us, uh, we transitioned into the, into the um, practical part. And interestingly, Paul starts with these words, I urge you, at the beginning of chapter 4, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's he saying? If you believe the tenets of our faith, if you've taken it on board, then it's got to change the way you live. And Paul firmly believes that the, uh, the, the, the theory, if you like, that he's been teaching in the first um, uh, three chapters should have practical outcomes in the holy community that he's addressing. Now, I was reminded this week as I was reading uh, Acts chapter 19, Paul spent a lot of time with the Ephesians. So on his fourth missionary journey, he passed through Ephesus and chose to stay there for two years. So he knew these people intimately. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. And it's interesting, he doesn't really address too much of the weaknesses. So they've, they've actually done a good job, it would seem, of taking on board a lot of the stuff that he's, um, uh, he's teaching us. Um, and why is that? Well, he talks about that in verse 11 of chapter 4, which Rachel um, uh, expanded to us last week. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the knowledge of the measure of the fullness of Christ. So if I could sum up what Paul has been saying up to the text we're looking at today, it's this. Here's the theory of what God's been doing and creating indirectly the community that you're part of. Now it's over to you to live like that means something. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, how come Paul has taken so long to get to this point? Why couldn't he have just gone to the Ephesians and said something like this? Okay, Christians in Ephesus, uh, here's the deal. You signed up for the Christian faith, uh, so when you die, you're going to heaven. Now, I've got a whole bunch of rules for you. You've got to stop lying to each other. You've got to stop uh, being angry with each other. You've got to stop telling dirty jokes. You've got to stop getting grumpy. They're the rules. Get with the program. We could have had a, a letter as short as maybe three John or something like that. Instead, we get four or five chapters um, of what may appear to be uh, abstract theology. Um, why has it, has it taken so long? Well, I think the answer lies in chapters, uh, chapter 4 and verses 17, 19. 
So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, is the way our text opens, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened by their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so it's to indulge in every kind of impurity and are full of greed. Now, notice that phrase, the futility of their thinking. Um, Now, I I don't know Greek, but one of the ways uh, pastors are meant to look clever or lay preachers are meant to look clever is to quote a little bit of Greek. So here comes the bit where I try and look a bit clever. The word that translates futility uh, in, our, in our Bibles, it's the Greek word uh, uh, mateoteti. It comes from an adjective, uh, mateos. It means empty, vain, purposeless. Now, we've seen a lot of that in the Bible. You go back to um, Ecclesiastes, the opening parts of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or uh, there, are, there are different translations. I, uh, forgive me, I'm a King James reader originally, so that's the way it comes. Same word in the, um, in the uh, Septuagint, the, the Greek version of that, of that text. So it's dealing with an old idea which, which, uh, which, which comes down to us from the Old Testament of the idea of life under the sun, without, with God out of the picture, is futile, it's vain, it's purposeless. Now, think about that for a second. Who thinks, hands up if you think your life has been vain, purposeless, meaningless. I don't see many hands up. Um, Viktor Frankl is a name you may uh, uh, come across in your travels. Viktor Frankl uh, was the professor of psychiatry at the University of Vienna. He died, I think, in the 1990s. But he's famous because uh, he turned up the chance to leave Vienna in a hurry in 1938 and take an academic position in the United States, where he would have been safe. You see, Viktor Frankl was Jewish. The Nazis marched into Vienna in March of 1938. And Frankl observed the mobs pillaging the uh, synagogue in uh, Vienna and, uh, and then he went back to his parents' apartment and there was a piece of marble on his father's kitchen table and uh, Frankel said, Dad, what's that? Well, I went down to the um, synagogue and uh, I managed to rescue this from the, um, from the, from the synagogue. It's the, um, it's, the, it's the bit up the front where we have the Ten Commandments and uh, Frankel obviously couldn't read Hebrew. He says, what's that bit? He says, honour your father and mother. Frankl said, that's it, I'm not going. He stayed in Vienna and ended up in a concentration camp. And there in the midst of the concentration camp, Frankl was thinking, what the heck am I doing here? Uh, there would have been a, a, a fancy way of saying it, but that's basically what, what, um, what he wrote about um, when, he, um, uh, when he wrote his famous work, uh, Men's Search for, for, for Meaning. Um, and he realised there in the concentration camp that if one had a, 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 a meaning or a purpose to life, then anything was possible. And so he started to imagine what it would be like coming out of that prison camp, if that were possible. And he had a, a, a rich fantasy life by that stage. He imagined being back at, at, at the University of Vienna, lecturing in a comfortable lecture hall about the psychology of the concentration camp. And that became his purpose. Frankel records that about 1944, the, uh, the guards set him and his fellow prisoners to work on some sort of uh, uh, project. And they earned a Christmas bonus. And the Christmas bonus was two cigarettes, he said, I've never felt such satisfaction just earning two cigarettes. So he talked about the whole idea of, of, of meaning and purpose. And, and that, uh, that theory, when he, when, when he finally got back to academia, became, became revolutionary. Now, why do I share with you the teachings of a, of a guy who obviously wasn't Christian? No, Frankel was, was Jewish. Because come back to our text. The Gentiles, say Paul, are, are uh, trapped in, in futility. 
Their lives are meaningless. They may not seem like that, but if you take God out of the picture, your life becomes meaningless. You're going nowhere. It's going to end. We all know it's going to end in death and and then in hell. But even if you look at this life, what what did we learn about in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, maybe none of us have lived to see a coronavirus crisis, but go back in time. 1919, there was a terrible flu epidemic that wiped out 150 million people around the world. There's nothing new under the sun. Live without God, and eventually you will come to the conclusion that life has no meaning. It's purposeless. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be trapped. Now, I want, to, um, I want to transition from that to, um, to, to share something I, I, uh, I think is important. It's the idea that ideas have consequences. Our ideas, as we, as we take them up from, from the Bible, and particularly from the opening chapters of Ephesians, have consequences. Everyone's ideas have consequences. Um, I first uh, discovered that idea, ideas have consequences, reading a, 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 a very heavy work of, uh, of philosophy with that title, Ideas Have Consequences. The author was arguing that the reason the, the 20th century was such a, a messy place was because of changes in philosophy that had five or six hundred, that had, cha- had changed in the world of philosophy five or six hundred years ago. And I, I laughed as I think about it, and then I thought about it. There was a, there was a grumpy-looking German guy with hair all over the place. You used to be able to see in the reading, library, uh, reading room of the British Museum around about 1860. If you'd gone there, you could have seen him. He was there, there in the open, cooking up his ideas. His name was Karl Marx. Harmless enough, fellow. But before the 20th century was through, his ideas had killed 100 million people. Now, let's look at the flip side of that. Who, who can recognise where these, the, the, this, these words come from? These truths we hold to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's a two of these rights governments are instituted amongst men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. Anyone know where that comes from? The, the, uh, the American Declaration of Independence. A bunch of white guys in the 18th century cooked up these ideas. They were just ideas. The people who actually put their signature to, to that declaration, some of them didn't actually believe these ideas, but those ideas have consequences, because today, the superpower that governs just about everything we do, and will... For the, for the life expectancy of just about everyone in this room, are governed by those, those principles. So ideas have consequences. Well, fast forward to our own time and make it a little more, um, more practical. Ideas have consequences for us too. Let me illustrate it with, um, with, with one more point and then we can start to get, um, to get uh, practical. You, want, you don't believe that ideas have consequences? Consider this. It used to be when... Uh, uh, laws and, and regulations in our country were closer to a Christian worldview. It used to be we had very strict rules on pornography. So when D.H. Lawrence published uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, it was banned. You couldn't get hold of it unless you, you got an illegal copy somewhere. Same deal with um, Vladimir Nabokov when he published uh, that pornographic novel, Lolita, in 1955. Well, the world thought that was silly, right? They made a lot of, uh, of, of speeches about, um, about the importance of, of being able to access... Um, uh, freedom of, of, of expression and, and, and so on. I don't, I don't need to, to labour the point too much, but fast forward in time. Today, pornography is easily accessible just by reaching out... My mobile phone's over here. All you've got to do is pull out this and you can get access to stuff that uh, D.H. That, uh, Lawrence wouldn't have even dreamed about was, uh, in terms of its, its, its pornographic content. And I looked at the statistics. Five to eight percent of the population has a problem with pornography. Now, what would Paul have to say about that? We saw it in our text today. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. Folks, ideas have consequences, but they're living out in our post-Christian world today. And it's the ideas that Paul is calling us away from. So what's, what's Paul saying? 
Take it back to Ephesians chapter 4 and summarize it like this. Stop allowing your foolish heart to be darkened. You've been, you've been bought out of that. Those folks that have their, have their hearts darkened, you don't need to have your hearts darkened. Stop lift, listening to those Gentile thinking secularists propagating their views on Facebook, on television, and for us old-fashioned folks on radio. Read your Bible by yourself and others. Seek to understand from your Bible what God is doing in your world. Behind the scenes which makes it kind of a little difficult to understand apart from the the revelation that Paul Paul gives us here. Change your thinking and do what the Holy Spirit teaches you in the Bible. And once you do that, everything else that Paul talks about in the Bible will start to make sense because you will have, to quote the text, a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, let's make it really practical and just to to increase the degree of difficulty, I'll, um, I'll preach against myself at this point. So when John O assigned this passage to me a few weeks ago, he said, uh, Stuart, I don't think you're ready to preach on this passage. I said, uh, bring it on, John. I'll, um, I'll, I prom- and I promised I would not only be good, but uh, I would, um, I'd preach against myself. You see, what we have in chapter 4, verse, verse 25, down to chapter uh, 5, verse 20, is a series of admonition in Christian living that I'm still learning to live by. I'm 49 years old. I've been going to church, as I say, my entire life, and I'm still learning to live by this. I suspect so are you even if you've been going to church longer than, longer than I have. And I think we all have some very specific work to do. Okay, but uh, let, let me make it easy for you. I'm going to tell you two embarrassing stories. So I once informed Jono in an email that I intended to do something very quickly. Only um, if you've got to know me a little bit, you know I sometimes have a funny turn of phrase. And uh, Jono has forbidden me from telling you the phrase that I actually used. Uh, needless to say, it had to do with the um, immoral lifestyle of a, uh, a certain US president uh, that... Uh, served in the 20th century, I'll, I'll leave it at that, uh, and the alacrity with which um, he would uh, fall to certain sin. Now, what was wrong with my joke? I said to myself, look, I'm just poking fun at sinful behaviour. Um, but then, if you look at chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, what does it say? Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or course of joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Okay, so strike one. I shouldn't tell jokes like the joke that I can't tell you about this morning. Um, uh, I, should have, I should have just used a... I, I mean, there, there are end, endless number of ways to say, uh, say things without having to descend to, um, to the smut that I was engaging in. Um, and I forgot to mention, by the way, chapter 5 and verse 12. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Okay, so there's one area where I need to... Um, I need to um, Listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. Now, let me tell you embarrassing story number two. Not long before I started coming to this church, I woke up on Sunday morning with a hangover. One too many whiskeys the night before. Now, maybe I had some excuse. I was homeless at the time. I was sleeping in my car. My marriage had broken up, and as a result, I was a little bit upset and somewhat confused about life. Thankfully, my hangover had subsided by the time I stumbled into St Andrew's Cathedral for morning worship. And as I joked to myself lately, thankfully they didn't do um, communion that morning because they still have alcohol in the communion table in in the Anglican church they used to worship at. Um, I might have been in trouble. Now, what would Paul say about my excessive use of the hip flask the previous uh, day? Chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. 
Okay, so I had some work to do at, at, at that time, and I can assure you uh, uh, I didn't touch the whiskey bottle last night. Um, let me ask this. Why do we fail to live in the spirit of Ephesians chapter four verse, uh, chapters 4 and, verse, and, and chapter 5? Why can't we do it? Well, I think we're afraid that we'll be regarded as, as, uh, as wowsers and killjoys by people we work with, by, by the people we socialise down at the football club, by, uh, by our family members, people we care for. Now, let's preach against this as well. There probably was a time when we were a little too uh, strict on stuff that wasn't actually sinful. I am old enough to remember my parents seriously telling me that when Christ turned water into wine, he turned it into a, um, a diluted form of grape juice. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and and that, that's contrary to, to passages in Scripture like Psalm 104, where the Bible speaks positively about, um, about uh, alcohol. And it was really against drunkenness that, we were, that, um, that, that the Bible was, was uh, speaking against. Um, now, don't get me started on Baptists and dancing. But the point is this, possibly we went too far the other way. Um, and I'll, I'll share with you this insight someone gave to me a while ago. Um, this was the um, a guy called Peter Achterstrut, who was uh, our, uh, formerly our um, Auditor General for the State of New South Wales and quite a serious Christian. And uh, Peter Achterstrut had a great witness in the Auditor General's department. He would, he would nev- never go to lunch, but he'd meet every morning with people in the department that he'd, he'd never met before, invite a few of them into their office and talk and just get to know them. He was quite open with his, with his faith. He said, the trouble with us Christians, he says, most people, when they think of us, they think Christians are people who don't swear and they hate homosexuals. Now, if that's true, that's shameful, isn't it? Now, for a while there, I was flipping the, um, I was flipping the logic, being nice to homosexuals and swearing. That's, that's probably not... Well, the latter of those is probably not, uh, not, not, not helpful, helpful either. And let me say right up, I don't approve of swearing, but I think we have an image problem in that regard that we're still trying to shake off. And no wonder... In 2002, um, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney did a survey of the population. Who do you know who uh, is a committed Christian who goes to church every Sunday? Is the, they asked a cross-section of the population of Sydney. This was 2002. Anyone want to have a guess? What percentage said yes, they knew someone, friend or family member or work colleague, who was an active Christian who went to church? Anyone want to make a guess what, what the number was? 80. We've got 80 over here. Anyone want to, want to give another, another bid? 20. Okay, let's go for the middle. 45%. This is 2002. Only 45% of Sydney-siders personally knew a friend, family member, or a colleague who went to church. So no wonder. People don't know who we are. Well, if they did, they might find out that as we lived by Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, that we didn't actually have to live in the futility of their thinking like, like us, and we could shine as lights in the world. Um, so let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 and see if this would really make us uh, wowsers and killjoys. Chapter 4, verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we're all members of one body. Now, I've never heard anyone uh, who tell me people should lie more. Anyone in favour of more lies here? Now, basically, I mean, this is, this is a, a universal standard for everyone. We want people to lie less to us. Um, uh, I mean, we're, we're so conscious of, of the need for honesty in our society. Every year, Gallup um, uh, polls the population. Who's the most trusted member of society? It's always nurses at the top of the list. It's used car salesmen at the bottom. I mean, it's basically, we want people to be honest. And unfortunately, the used car salesmen uh, come off as being low on the honesty scale, which means more of us Christians ought to go into the used car trade, quite frankly. Chapter 4, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Okay, who wants to see uh, uh, more anger in the world? 
Again, nobody, a, a universal standard. We want, we want less anger. Anger is destructive. And let's face it, since social media became, became uh, the thing, there's probably more anger out there than there used to be. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Who wants more stealing in our society? I like to joke, I, I want less corruption or a, I like a greater slice of what corruption is out there. Um, but for, frankly, none of us want that, Christian or, or non-Christian. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, that's got to sound appealing. In an era when people are willing to say all manner of unkind things online, including, alas, the, the current leader of the free world, um, you know, it's about time we took on board, on board, um, on board that teaching. Uh, maybe if we could live in the spirit of verse 29 of chapter 4, we could get rid of that grievous uh, problem of the 21st century known as cyberbullying, for example. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. I have yet to meet anyone who believes in, in, in that. And may I say, that's something I've probably got to struggle with as well. There's a few people uh, that I'm, I'm, I've become bitter about as a result of the failure of my previous marriage that um, I need to do a better job of, of, of being forgiving to. Which brings us to verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as, just as in Christ God forgave you. Who doesn't want forgiveness for the things they've done wrong? Chapter 5, verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these things are improper for God's holy people. Now, um, I'm against greed. And uh, I'm a businessman. Um, because contrary to what um, Mike, the Michael Douglas character Gordon Gecko says in that 1987 film called Wall Street, greed is not good, nor is greed right. And frankly, I'm not sure if greed even works. Uh, that enlightened self-interest is a little bit different. But, uh, but I'm practically sure that the majority of the human race um, uh, b- b- uh, agrees with me as well. So perhaps I'm labouring the point a bit, but, but my, my, my point is this. What Paul is calling us to do here, our non-Christian friends and relatives uh, agree with us as well. If we live like this, we would be truly light of the world without having to live in the futility of the thinking like our, our, um, our, our Gentile friends do. I'm reminded at this point of C.S. Lewis's um, masterwork from 1952, Mere Christianity. Um, I've read it twice, and uh, it's probably the only Christian book I've actually read twice. Uh, it's so good. I, I commend it all to you if, you if you've never read it. It's, it's one of the reasons I'm still a Christian. I figured if old, if old Clive could, um, could come to the point of faith according to the logic that he, that he reached, then it was good enough for me as well. Uh, that was something I reached about, about 20 years ago. But the, the passage that jumped out at me early in, in the book is this. Men have differed as to whether you could have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you simply couldn't simply have any woman you liked. So in other words, there's a universal morality out there, and if people paid attention to it, they'd start, they'd start uh, uh, moving towards our way of thinking because the Bible taught this before, um, uh, uh, before anyone started to, to, to figure this out in a, in a serious way. So my message is this. If we Christians like this, lived like this, we'd be regarded as great people. People would want to have us as friends, as teammates, as, as work colleagues. We'd be regarded as upstanding citizens, which begs the question... Why don't we live like this? Well, no one's perfect. Okay, I, I don't need to remind you, of, remind you of that. The Bible teaches us very clearly there's, there's an old sin nature that, um, that, that doesn't go away uh, this side of eternity. But I'm also drawn at this point to um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul tells us, 
do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an odd-sounding verse. And it had me worried for a second that uh, Paul was dealing with that issue from about uh, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and interestingly, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is mentioned in all three of the, uh, the synoptic gospels. So God wants to take, us, take that sin seriously. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Remember, what's the uh, purpose of the Holy Spirit? We'll go back to John chapter 14. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He's sent by God the Father to help us live God's way after, after, uh, uh, after Jesus goes back to heaven. When we deliberately sin, we don't just harm ourselves. And let's face it, sin harms ourselves as much as it, it, it harms other people. But we make the Holy Spirit unhappy because we don't let him do his job. If you're deliberately sinning, the Holy Spirit can't, can't come in and move you in the direction that he wants to go. And it's grievous to him. It makes him sad. And Paul's saying, chapter 4, verse 30, we shouldn't do that. But we should be open to what the Holy Spirit is, um, is saying in our lives. Now, Paul is not mucking around, folks, when, when, um, uh, when we get this passage. Uh, take a look at chapter 5, verse 6. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you. Interesting, he talks a lot about deception and the, and the, the, the uh, philosophy of the world being, being deceptive in this letter. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So why is Paul being so harsh? It's because the stake of, of our... Uh, it, what's at stake is our holy community. And I, I take you back to what I said at the start. The lights have come on in the world, folks. Behind the scenes, behind our little, little uh, 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 holy community here in, in Hornsby or in Sydney or Australia, there's a, there's, a, there's a vast chess game going on where God is bringing all things together under himself. Coronavirus is just a blip on that. In fact, it's an opportunity to make money. Stocks will drop to, to uh, some serious lows in the next little while. So um, call your broker and get some good rec- recommendations. Sorry, that, that, that's not a, 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 a recommendation for greed. My point is this. When coronavirus has been, has been uh, sent to the history books and your grandchildren are saying, Dad or Granddad, what was coronavirus? God will still be at work, uh, not just creating his whole community, but all the other things that he's, that he's doing behind the scenes. And when we don't live like this, we mess it up. We make it harder to, for, for God to, for, to do his work. I'm reminded of that, um, of that propaganda piece from, from I'm guessing, I think it was the First World War, but it was probably using the second one, second one as well. Loose lips sink ships. Okay, so if we, if, we, if we let the side down, it might just seem like a, like a harmless piece of fun, but you could have, have, um, have, have long-term, uh, long-term consequences. So what do we need to do? to build up the, the, the body of Christ here at Northern Life Baptist. What do we need to stop doing or what do we need to, to, to start doing? Do you need to stop coarse joking? Okay, tick. Uh, that's something I need to, to, um, to, to work on. Um, do you need to show more love and compassion to people? And let me just pause at that point. It's interesting to me. Um, so Paul visited the Ephesian church in, the, I think, the late 50s AD. Spent a lot of time with this, this church building itself up to the point where he writes in this letter he doesn't have much to rebuke them about. Now fast forward in time. In the 90s AD, when Paul is getting his, uh, St John is getting his revelation on the island of Patmos, he's given the job of sending seven letters off to the churches and the first letter goes to the church at Ephesus. If you know your seven letters uh, of Ephesus, what was the criticism of the, of the church at... at, at, at uh, the seven letters to the churches, the, the criticism of the church at Ephesus, you lost your first love. So I think these people actually took on board the first three chapters. They got their doctrine right. 
And, uh, and the letter in, in Revelation commends them for that. But in the process, they lost their first love. So I think for us, we need to make sure that we don't lose our first love. We're all faithful. I've yet to spot a heretic here, but you know, if there's a heretic, I'll find you. Um, we, we, so, so we know our Bibles very well. We care for each other. We're, 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 we're welcoming, but we need to watch out that we don't lose our first love. And, uh, and Paul has something to say about, about that in this letter. Can I suggest this week that we think about the following? First of all, have you retooled your mind so that you've moved away from the futility of, uh, of the way the Gentiles think? Let me, let me, um, let me uh, put it to you this way. Take a look at what trends on Google from week to week. It's always stupid stuff. Without fail, it's, it's, um, it's Prince Harry and his wife are trending heavily on Google this week. Or it's married at first sight. Or it's something, other, something silly like that. That's another example of the, of the futility that, 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 that Paul speaks of. Do we need to remove ourselves from that and let the Holy Spirit work in us to, to the renewing of our, of our minds? Are we grieving the Holy Spirit? In our, in our lives and actions. Let's choose to live differently because we've been called out of that lifestyle and we're part of something really big that God is, is working on and we don't want to be like the children of wrath. I'm going to pray now and then we'll conclude. Gracious Father, thanks for this, for this message that you have given from the, the um, letter to the Ephesians. Uh, thank you that you've called us um, into your kingdom to be children of light. And we pray that we'll live as children of light and not of children's disobedience or wrath. Please bless this church. Thank you for the building you've given us. Cause, it, cause this church to grow and prosper and to be a light in the world. I pray this church will grow big enough so that we can't meet here because, uh, because the government won't let more than 500 people come. And, and I pray that your Holy Spirit might move amongst us and not be grieved by us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.